Welcome back. This is mile 40 of the Seconds Flat Running podcast. We interrupt the regularly scheduled programming with breaking news. I got a plane to catch to Utah, but I don't even care because we just need to bring this to the people. Huge events in track and field and road racing over the past couple days. Benji, good morning. Good morrow. I got, <laughs> I got the text from you this morning. Do you want to get in an emergency episode? And I had had the same thought on my mind. So we are on the same page in lockstep as always with two monumental moments. Before we get to that, some quick housekeeping on some stuff that's happened here that's would normally be equally huge. For those folks who have not been watching track and field world champs, Donovan Brazier with a huge American record today in the 800 meters gold medal at the world champs breaks Johnny Gray's record that is 30 plus years old. Incredible performance. Uh, 142.39, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Thoughts on that real quick before we go on. I feel like this has been a long time coming for the United States. We haven't had a a champion, a gold medal winner in 47 years, not since Dave Waddle. Bowling Green State University's Dave Waddle. Yes, sir. It's exciting that Brazier did it so young as well. He's only 22 years old, and it makes me really excited that distance running in the United States has a face that's so fresh and young. Well, another fresh young face we have is Bryce Hopple, who put on a good performance today out of Kansas, just turned professional. And I think you'll see Clayton Murphy had a really solid season. He didn't have it today, but he's on his way back, I think, in this event as well. So the American contingent with three in the finals looked really good. Also, we were super stoked for a couple events when we last talked to you that happened yesterday. It was a Kenyan gold medal in the women's 3K steeple, but Emma Coburn, American, did have a great performance for a silver. The 5,000 meter men's race was as unpredictable as we predicted. Yes. Uh, There were all kinds of moves going back and forth there. They went out really hard, hammered from the gun, in a coordinated effort. You mentioned, will there be team tactics? And we thought about it from the Norwegian perspective, but it was team tactics in the other direction as the East Africans tried to break the Ingebrigtsen brothers early. Ultimately, that move, I don't know if it worked or didn't work because the youngest of the Ingebrigtsens, Jakob, Jacob got himself in position and took the lead late. With 300 meters to go. 300 to go. Came off the curve, slingshot the curve with a big move. However, it fell short. He got passed by a few guys. And we were watching live together, and good friend Dane Simmons said that was a Prefontaine-esque effort by Ingebrigtsen. And that storyline has emerged since of he just gunned it. A 19-year-old who said... I don't care about just getting a medal. I want to try to win this, even if it actually did cost him. And then the other one was the 400-meter hurdles, which we were excited for as well. Karsten Warholm holds off Rye Benjamin in an event that featured a $2 million introduction ceremony. 
What? That's what the people of Doha spent on the introductions to light up the track with a laser light show. Epic. Hopefully you can check it out on YouTube. They've done kind of a watered-down version of this for the other finals this week, but they lived it up for their man, who Samba actually finished third and did get a medal. So all three of the guys who are three of the four to ever break 47 medaled. Quick thoughts on any of those races? Absolutely. In the men's 5,000, one of the coolest things to me about it was our third place finisher, Mo Ahmed from Canada. Mm-hmm. He's finished fourth, fifth, and sixth in recent global championships. So it was awesome for the Canadian to finally get his medal. Um, he's an alum of Wisconsin. Go Badgers. Bucky. Um, also, the spectators during the 5,000 were crazy thanks to a large presence of Ethiopian spectators. They were going nuts. I haven't seen any of the other distance events get that loud at a global championship since like Mo Farah running in London. And they have medals to take home to celebrate with. Yes. Yeah. Let's move quickly to the headlines. First from Berlin, Sunday morning. Every time I think to myself, I'm done with the smartphone. Get rid of it. What is it bringing to my life? What happens? I wake up at 5.30 a.m. Out of town in Atlanta visiting family this weekend. Sleeping in a bed that was built for a 10-year-old girl. So perfect for my size. And in an effort not to wake up the rest of the family, popped on the Berlin Marathon coverage on the NBC Sports app on my phone. And what do I see but our man Kenny B. Kenanisa Bekele... He's back. 201.41 for the win. If you're keeping track, that is two seconds off of Elliot Kipchoge's marathon world record. The second fastest time in marathon history. Not even a course record, I'll point out, because Kipchoge <laughs> set the record at Berlin. Yes. You look at the splits. He had previously asked to go out at about 61.30 pace, or on 2.03 pace, through halfway. He came through half in 61.05, casual through the first half, comfortable in a group of guys behind the pacers. And there was also a 2.02 and 2.03 performance in this that are completely overshadowed, because I couldn't who tell cares? you who they were. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> So he comes through in 61.05, so he's really close to world record pace. They got out the first, immediately just shot out the first K well under world record pace. Bounced around it. His last splits, his 30 to 35K, 35 to 40K, and 40K to the finish, he ran all of those faster than world record pace. He was blazing just missed this thing by two seconds from 35 to 40k he was scooting 14 16 on the 5k split there i will raise my hand among the millions of our listeners who would just be happy to take the 14 16 5k and walk away for a day (laughs) he did that after 35k of fast running this raises a bunch of questions about the future of bakele and the marathon and just human limits and distance running from a 37-year-old man who 
we thought maybe was a decade past his prime. We talked about it last time. He has struggled in recent marathons. Neither of us saw this coming. And I said, he's either going to have a great race and target something huge, or he might walk off the course. And I probably thought walk off the course was more likely. And then it was a question of, is this the end for him if he doesn't have a great race? Now is this a new beginning? So I'm going to throw some questions at you, Benji. Hit me. Is he now, and perhaps once again, the greatest of all time? Because you and I seemed ready and happy to crown Elliot Kipchoge after all the marathon championships he's had, and, and good success on the track, but not Bekele success. 12.37.5 KPR, 26.17.10 KPR. Just a couple of world records there, and he almost went triple crown with his 201.41 in the marathon. Is he the greatest? He is the fastest distance runner of all time. Okay, here we go. Nuanced, nice. Yes. Go ahead. I think with a certain level of greatness is consistency. Yes. That is a huge piece of that in my mind. Uh, You may disagree. No, I completely agree. I am comfortable saying he is the fastest. Mm -hmm. And I think at one point he was the greatest. Right. I just, I maintain with Kipchoge's last, what, 10 years? Yeah. Uh, he's the greatest distance runner of all time. I'm going to go with you on this. I think it's so easy to overreact from what we've seen that's the newest and latest and greatest. And his range is incredible. And this performance, again, at 37, is breathtaking and gives me just a touch of hope. But Kipchoge's consistency, which seems to be also a reflection of his mental focus and preparation which over the past decade i think it's pretty easy to say has been far superior to bekele's yes absolutely i think that is is what separates him and maybe it would take a head-to-head battle of these two in which bekele wins and i don't know then if that is if that reasserts him or not but i'm with you on kipchoge so, yeah, go ahead. Just to raise two points to what you yeah, said. Yeah, good. For the uh, level of focus Bekele has not seemed to have mm-hmm. the last 10 years, he is involved with several different businesses and business dealings in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. For this training block before Berlin, he and his coach actually stayed for several months in Austria, mm. and he was not allowed to be involved with his businesses at all. So I think he almost had to become a little more Kipchoge-esque yep. and get back to being the hungry Kenanisa he used to be rather than this already successful man who's also running. Yeah. And then to that point, I want to ask you a question. Please. In deciding this greatest distance runner of all time, do you think we see these two go head-to-head in Tokyo? Okay, so this was my next question for you, actually. I got this okay. laundry list of questions that we have not discussed. And it is, do we ever see, not just at Tokyo, but Bekele and Kipchoge head-to-head at this level ever? Because Tokyo is almost a year away. We know for certain it's going to be run in really difficult conditions. Added to... It already being a championship race, which yields different types of racing. We're not going to see this lightning-fast course like Berlin, flat and fast with pacers. 
it'll be a totally different environment. But I would add to that, it's very unlikely we see them head-to-head before then, given the timing of Tokyo. It's unlikely we'd see them both at Berlin next year, because that will be coming just a month after Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to take us then all the way into 2021 spring. But Kayleigh's knocking on the door of 40, and Kipchoge, regardless of what we're told, might be knocking on the door of 40 as well. (laughs) I think we see them both at Berlin. Excuse me. I think we see them both at Tokyo. I think that's the natural next step here. I don't know what Bekele has to lose at this point, and Kipchoge has always pointed towards going back to the Olympics. I personally don't think we see Kenanisa at Tokyo. Now, do you say that because you think something happens between now and then? No. I feel from his past marathon attempts that the conditions will not be conducive to okay. his running style. or Every time we've seen him struggle, it's been like dehydration or a hamstring issue and being in that extreme heat it's just going to lead to potential for something like that to happen so i don't think we see him and his agent deciding on risking it so there's money to be made they just say thanks but no thanks yeah we'll go elsewhere he's got his olympic medals he has nothing to prove well that on the having olympic medals that's true but i do think he has one thing to prove and that's potentially beating Kipchoge. I don't think he can in Tokyo. I I would 100% agree with you. And Kipchoge's experience in Rio would back that up in similar, perhaps not as extreme, but similar conditions where he was highly successful. So I get your position, but I think I'm going to stick with leaning towards seeing them both in Tokyo because I'm not sure what else Bekele does unless it's your position of he skips it and just goes back to Berlin could make some sense because of the appearance fees. Yeah, yeah. you know, and I'll, I'll take it another step, though. What could they accomplish together racing if they had both been at Berlin this weekend? Man. And, and so then... The question is, what implication does this performance by Bekele have for the pursuit to break two hours in a marathon? I feel like we made a significant jump this weekend, even though the world record is intact. Because, as you said, you don't even know the guys who ran 202 and 203. And you had another guy go under 202. And so these are not even the people that we thought had the best chance. Everyone had this consensus that Kipchoge by far has the best chance to do it. What would have happened, maybe it wouldn't have been different, but what would have happened in that last 10K if the two had been going head-to-head? Or what if they had gotten to half at 61 and Kipchoge, knowing his strength, had started to press earlier to try to break Bekele? Do you agree? Do you think this puts us near the two-hour barrier in an actual race setting? Absolutely, and I don't even think it's going to come from one of those two. Okay. Kipchoge said it after this half-marathon world record was set that he believes it's going to be Jeffrey Kamwar that does it in a real race. Interesting. So, <sighs> Kamwar has, obviously, he's won New York, great racer, incredible half-marathon, a great cross-country runner. It feels like a little bit of a, a, a turn of position from you. I feel like you've pivoted a little bit, and I thought we were both generally together on the Kipchoge's the best guy with a shot. I I believe currently. Kim Warrior is still young. He's yeah. He's like 25. 
but we've seen the, how the World Half Marathon record translates to the marathon, and I will add we've also seen how deferential and warmly supportive of his opponents Kipchoge is. We've seen this before. After 2016 at Rio, when Galen Rupp won bronze and was new to marathoning, Kipchoge, after that race, said that Galen Rupp would someday hold the world marathon record. And I don't think there's anyone who suggests that at this point, and that would be a very big jump for Galen Rupp. I don't think there's anybody who wants that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, We'll get to more on that story in a little bit. I wouldn't mind seeing an American have the marathon world record. What does Kipchoge have to do now in this attempt that we are within two weeks from in the Ineos 159 in Vienna, Austria? What does he have to do there to bring the spotlight back on him? Do you think 159 will be enough? Well, that that's the question, is just breaking two. Don't you almost expect him to do it at this point? Yeah. And the more you see on the background and the test runs and the and the pacers they have in this... It feels like it would be a disappointment. He has to baseline as he has to at least beat what he did at Monza in the first breaking two experiment. If he doesn't break two, one, it's a disappointment, and he has not had many disappointments in his career as a marathoner. Two, it's probably the end of this Elliot Kipchoge stunt race breaking two type of thing. And if it was anybody else... I don't know how interested I would be, but he is such a champion for the sport and such a seemingly good person. You have to have in the back of your mind, can he do like, you are holding up digits in your hands right now that were in my brain. Does he have to do, for the people who are not able to see through the podcast, 158? I think in order to have the status he had in the marathon prior to this weekend, he has to run under 159. (sighs) Just to say that he is head and shoulders above everybody again. Yeah. For me, as a fan, that's what it would take to convince me. I'll take a little longer term view and say, or he has to, in a racing situation in the coming year, break his world record. Yes. And then potentially break two in a racing situation. But holy smokes, did Bekele just totally change the conversation. I, I don't know anyone except for maybe the few most passionate Bekele sycophants who have been on him since his days on the track who thought this was possible. As an aside, at Berlin, we mentioned Sarah Hall, that oh, we had yeah. some high hopes for her, and she nailed it. 222.16, big personal best, fifth place with a slight negative split, and that includes a fade from 35 to 40K where she gave back a little bit of time. She slowed there, and it was her, I believe, second slowest 5K split of the day after a really strong 30 to 35K. She is now on my list of favorites. We've mentioned her name, but she's on my list of favorites to make the American Marathon team, which should be, again, such an awesome competition in Atlanta late winter. Sarah Hall, good on you. Great performance. Let's move to big story number two. And that is the four-year ban from athletics for Nike Oregon Project coach and distance racing legend Alberto Salazar. Uh, He's been under a cloud of suspicion on doping allegations for several years. The ban is based in those allegations 
Benji's going to lay out the findings. Not necessarily new stuff here. This is stuff that's been known and discussed for several years, but now confirmed in a way that leads to one of the handful of best-known American marathoners of all time and one of the handful of most successful coaches in track and field of all time facing a ban as he probably is heading towards the end of his career anyway. I don't know that we see Alberto Salazar assuming that an appeal gets denied here, coaching again at this level ever again. So discuss what this means. We spent last episode talking about some of the Kenyan doping allegations, and now we bring it a little closer to home. So Benji, it's all yours. All right. So the three violations found to be committed by Salazar are as followed. So the first one was that he had administered too much L-carnitine to the Oregon Project coach at the time, Steve Magnus. To build on what Benji's saying there, is one, a legal performance enhancer, but there are limits on how much you can take. And two, essentially the value of this in endurance sports is it helps your increase your ability to convert fat into energy. And we know there are supplements when you could take it in a drink form, and they were messing around with injections on this thing to try to get around it and increase those levels more quickly. Which goes directly into the second violation, where Salazar deliberately told his athletes that the infusions of L-carnitine they had were injections, and they didn't need to be reported to USADA because he was worried this would constitute a doping violation. USADA, the United States anti doping agency for people unfamiliar so not only are they doing it but then hiding what and how they're doing is infraction number two yes and the third one he was found guilty of was he violated anti-doping code by conducting testosterone experiments on his sons yeah that's the wild one there right um there's all kinds of stories that he has as to why he did it but we'll stay away from that And it's clear that there was intent to transport and use testosterone, which is against the rules. Now, with that said, Benji, this was just about Coach Salazar. What do we see in the documents about his athletes? The charge that actually wasn't found was that Salazar gave too much L-carnitine to his athletes. Mm -hmm. So no athlete is convicted in this as of Mm -hmm. now nor even implicated no right it doesn't even suggest that there's an investigation into his athletes at the moment yeah and there was there's some comment that some of the stuff he did was even perhaps unknowing but these are the violations that seem most clear they actually said that everything he did seemed with good intentions and for his athletes benefit like he wasn't trying nothing seemed deliberately like he was trying to cheat but he's he's working in that gray area that we know is it's murky and we know there are groups in other parts of the world that are certainly deliberately trying to cheat and i think the last point you made is important because we don't want to now suggest that all his athletes knowingly cheated i think it's fair to question them and to to wonder and that's why you made the galen rupp comment earlier who is He has been the bell cow of this group since the beginning. He's the prodigy that they built this group around. Sir Mo, who used to be a member of the group, certainly has fallen under that suspicion as well. Many of the Oregon Project athletes aren't even coached by Salazar, but they 
feel the brunt of some of this now because it's the somewhat of a guilt by association. How does it impact his athletes going forward? I mean, what do you see? We're in the middle of world championships with athletes that he coaches, and we got Chicago coming up in a week and a half with athletes coached by Salazar. Yeah, I mean, for the rest of their careers, all of these athletes are going to have this cloud around them. There's always going to be suspicion. Uh, It really makes you feel bad for those athletes who work with the uh, Oregon Project's assistant coach, Pete Julian, alone. And you have all these athletes competing at the World Championships who are having to give statements and answer questions from interviewers about this case that has nothing to do with them specifically. And it makes you wonder what's how that affects their mental preparation and if USADA did the right thing by breaking this news now or waiting until after the World Championships to mm. be fair f- to the athletes. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I hadn't thought of that. From that line of thinking, that mental effect that it might have on the athletes in competition. Safan Hassan is an example we discussed before who just crushed the 10K. And, of course, it immediately leads to questions of, well, why would she crush the 10K like that? Right. Was she that good before she was with Salazar? But from a human element now, if she's clean and she's coming back to run again later this week. And if she wins again. What does she have to deal with, one, in the preparation for it that are variables she can no longer control? And then, two, what do people think, as you said, if she wins that it has this historic double and it gets in some ways rendered less meaningful because of this? I'm assuming there's going to be... We've already seen a statement come out from Salazar and Nike. Salazar, his, the doctor that he used, Nike also. There, there are implications for those people. I, uh, I, I am going to applaud Steve Magnus, who we both think a lot of as a, a very reasonable and insightful thinker when it comes to endurance training. Uh, Steve was a 401 high school high school miler, as we've mentioned here before. He is the a, a track and field coach and the cross country coach at University of Houston, who has had a, a lot of success. And he was one who came out here in the beginning and said this was wrong. He went along with stuff that he regrets. He admits he regrets, but he made these statements when it was inconvenient for him. He didn't have a whole lot to gain by coming out, but he is a very level-headed, thoughtful, reasonable human being who um, I, I think deserves some credit for being willing to share when my sense is Nike and in particular, but also Salazar, probably put a lot of pressure on people not to talk about what was going on inside their team. Absolutely. And it makes me wonder, for these truth bearers, such as Magnus and Kara Goucher and Dathan Ritzenhine, what implications are it's going to have on their running careers and coaching careers because they admitted to being a part of these infractions? Yeah, they, they admitted to... Well, yeah, Magnus, I mean, essentially Could he admitted be to doping. Yeah, right. I don't know. I don't... Those folks probably did the sports at some level a service and i would hope that we see that some transparency and some accountability on this level in some of the east african groups like we talked about last episode because i don't think the nike oregon project was a systematic doping machine like the eastern block 
behind the Iron Curtain <laughs> in the 70s and 80s. Right. And records in track and field and swimming and other endurance events that stand for decades. But there are some there are suspicions uh, across the globe, and we hope that this is a step forward and a movement toward clean sport. I think one thing that really bothers me about this is it proves that Nike is too big to fail. A company that has buildings named after Alberto Salazar, Lance Armstrong, and Joe Paterno, and continues to back people convicted of multiple infractions such as Justin Gatlin. Mm-hmm. When, when is there a line drawn that says Nike is bad for the sport? And I guess the flip side of that is where is the discussion on second chances and versus it's time to move on? Don't know that I have an answer. I think that Nike is, you're right, they're incredibly powerful. And in some ways, they're bringing us amazing technology that may be advancing the sport and the research that they back that might be advancing the sport. But at what cost if athletes are putting up performances that we don't know if they're legitimate or not? That is mile 40. We... Had to get you the breaking news. We appreciate you hanging in through a crazy storm that just dropped on us during this episode that was completely unexpected. So we apologize for some background noise, particularly early on. The studio wasn't built to be that soundproof. (laughs) We're going to see you in maybe a week or so. Enjoy the rest of the World Championships. Have a great week, and we'll see you on mile 41 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast.